This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Social Death Spirals. Jean Brasseau. The Alias Structure. And the Aurora Airship Crash. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books. Play for players, run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, normally, the miniatures take the form of some tentacular horror and perhaps a guy in a fedora with a gun. But now, the fedorid fellow is attempting to extricate himself from some moral crisis. And I'm, I don't even think we have a moral crisis dungeon tile, Robin. I, <laughs> I'm so confused. Well, we, we, we do have one with uh, uh, Samuel Beckett on it. That'll have to do. All right. Yeah, we'll just use Samuel Beckett as, as our stand-in and tell our, everyone that he's... great play waiting for the DM. That's wonderful. Um, uh, let's see. Die 10 Estragons. Uh, four <laughs> hit dice apiece. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, the topic is not actually a modernist theater here in the gaming hut. It is, in fact, uh, death spiraling again because we had so much fun with death spirals last time that Patreon backer Tom Abella asked us to discuss other kind of spirals or the death spiral as he puts it. Death spiral too. The spiraling. The spiraling. A death spiral of the social contract, e.g. the film A Simple Plan, TV's Breaking Bad, or the Deep Space Nine episode In the Pale Moonlight, doing one bad thing for a greater good, leading to the need to do more bad things, straining relationships until you're left with someone unrecognizable from when you started. Other examples might include the play Macbeth. Although, admittedly, the character's good part is all in the prologue and yeah. none of it is on stage, much like Breaking Bad. So, Robin, what do we have to say about social death spiraling? So, and, and I guess the answer has to be other than play fiasco. Cause yeah. That would be, again, short segment. And easy. I think there's two separate things that we need to tease out here, which is the social spiral versus the moral spiral. So, right. a social spiral is your relationship to other people to and uh, uh presumably about the since we're talking about a spiral is the bonds being inexorably broken rather than being 
harmed and then uh, healed again. And then you've got the internal, your moral compass, your internal spiral. And I think those are almost two separate segments and two separate game experiences. But in both cases, I think the first thing you'd want to do is establish a resource or a marker that indicates the thing that you are losing. Uh, in the first case, your social relationships. And in the second case, your inner sense of what is right and wrong. And so the first one, uh, I think, suggests sort of a social hit point system. Right. Uh, I've, I've been thinking about this in terms of um, the Yellow King role-playing game, uh, where uh, you can get uh, cards that reflect physical injuries, cards that reflect emotional injuries. And uh, we have uh, periodically mooted the idea at Pelgrane of doing a, a Jane Austen uh, magical world sort of thing. And it now seems to me that the perfect way to simulate the social spiral of being, uh, you know, having your reputation slowly ebb away. And if it gets too bad, you're just gone from that world. Right. You're, you're socially dead to everyone. Well, that could easily be either a conventional uh, social hit point system or something like these cards where you would get a specific card. It would have effects. It would have a way that you could uh, get rid of it, perhaps, although that's less spirally and more up and downy. And if you got three, you know, social injury cards, three disgrace cards, I guess, as it were, that's it. You can't uh, go to bath anymore. Sorry. Right. You're out you, of there. You're not accepted in society. You might as well just go into service. Right. Um, there are previous, previously existing mechanics for measuring the strength of relationships. And I know this because I have done three of them. Uh, the, the bookstores, uh, credit rating in Bookhounds of London is very much like that, that as you, uh, engage in various activities, you endanger the credit rating of your bookstore and it can fall away. There is the relationship pools in Bubblegum Shoe. And it would not take too much tweaking. A, a death spiral can have some healing back to prolong the agony. Uh, in Call of Cthulhu, there are ways to rec recover your sanity most classically. Um, so in the relationship, uh, points now, pools at now is there in bubble gumshoe. You can heal them back by interacting in a scene, but it shouldn't be, it would not be a big hack of bubble gumshoe to present the capacity to heal back as, as crippled or as weakened comparatively, or increase the damage to the social contract done by doing awful things in the name of uh, solving crimes or getting revenge on uh, the head cheerleader or whatever it is you're, you're, that you're doing so that you could build that death spiral right into bubble gumshoe. And then of course the bonds in Delta Green uh, and in Fall of Delta Green are meant to erode and erode not quite in real time, but in super fast uh, compared to a death spiral of sanity uh, to indicate the way in which you are, in fact, uh, burning your, your social bridges and turning yourself into a sociopath or a pariah in order to better serve Delta Green and serve the common good uh, for as long as you can uh, remain a useful member of society. And all of those as you say, they, they put a numerical marker on the strength of the relationship. And then that marker drops in response to things that you are expected to normally do in the course of the game. And whether or not they can be healed back or recovered is usually, certainly in the case of Fall of Delta Green and Delta Green, it's much harder to heal bond points back than it is to spend them in the, uh, uh you know, in the, in the moment of, of emergency when you're, you know, destroying your relationship with your son in order to go stop, uh, the Migo or whatever. Right. So it's not a linear downward curve, but it's still overall a downward right. curve. Right. Yeah. It's a, 
it, it is as the as the word says a spiral it sort of moves around and around and around the drain and then eventually drops and as far as the moral compass goes of course the most famous example of that which may be on your mind uh, at the moment is humanity in vampire and there's all sorts of other games where your ability to behave uh, righteously erodes over time as you make uh, decisions and i guess sort of an interesting difference here is because quite often uh, groups of players are uh, sort of uh, happy and excited for the opportunity to p- put on the mask of irresponsibility and spiral down into uh, psychotic or sociopathic behavior. And so the tra- <laughs> or just this, hop down, <laughs> hop on down, <laughs> right. start there and work your way back. Um, and so the, the challenge there is to make that moral loss actually feel like something to give you some sort of sense of consequence and uh, just uh, sort of having a cost for that is one thing, but having the character feel a se- or the player feel a sense of mourning for the moral compass of the character is pretty challenging. And I guess comes down to less mechanics and more your ability to create a scenario, a situation that uh, tugs at their uh, moral uh, conscience. And so uh, that's a, a matter of creating difficult moral dilemmas where. You know, you can do this important yet somehow selfish thing, but here is the the cost of that, those sort of uh, dichotomies. And of course, you know, as soon as you make any of those choices, there's no choice C and choice A and choice B both lead to a different spiraling experience. Yeah, the real sort of onus there is on, for, well, for, it's always on the players to play the way that they claim that they want to play, because I can imagine there'd be plenty of players who say, oh, I, I want to play Breaking Bad, and I want to be a good man pushed to do bad, and then they don't care that they're doing bad, because that was really what they wanted to do, was, you know, shoot up meth labs and make other meth labs. And so the, uh first of all, you have to have player buy-in, but let's assume that's a given. But the, the GM then has to keep track of the social damage as rigorously as an old-school, cruel, uh, oppositional adversarial DM ever kept track of hit points or any other kind of losses. You know, oh, nope, you used that arrow. Now you're out of arrows. You can't have any more arrows in the dungeon. You have to be basically like a, a 13-year-old high school girl with a slam book and keep track of all the grudges that everyone in the world has against the player characters for their actions so that when they come back and they say, we'd really like your help to um, uh, take down these uh, aliens... Uh, the, the the character who plays their brother-in-law says, oh, that's interesting. I needed your help uh, a year ago when I was going through my chemotherapy and you were a jerk to me because you had to go fight aliens or something stupid. So the hell with you. And you have to be able to have these grudges have a real effect in the game because otherwise it does turn into an abstraction of, oh, well, we're, you know, five, six along the clock. So I guess everyone's five, six less happy to help you. And then that doesn't really feel like you gave anything up. That just feels like you're you're sort of going through a gauntlet that you knew ahead of time. But if you can come back with those specific grudges, those specific hatreds, those specific, you know, legitimate complaints, it's not even necessarily you went off to fight aliens, but you went off to train, you know, yourself um, uh, to gain uh, x-ray vision or something. And it's like, well, you still weren't here for 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 little Chad's uh, recital. And now, you know, he's taken up um, uh, the, the bongos instead as a, as a way of lashing out against you. Uh, Chad's become a beatnik. Yep, that's not a good scene. And, and well-limbed uh, story. The uh, mention of a simple plan suggests a, a play experience in which the uh, player characters lose their trust for one another. And so, uh, and of course, there's all sorts of cool 
uh, heist movies where the heist is at the beginning and then the gang uh, fraying and turning on each other is uh, the action of the piece. Simple Plan is a good example of that. And uh, for that, you can have a situation where player characters have to make trust roles in order to successfully interact with each other and, and trust each other. And when you fail a trust role, you are obliged to betray the group or at least a member of a group in uh, some small or increasingly large way as it uh, goes on. So your attempt then is to all remain together as a group while you uh, dig up the uh, gold treasure that you uh, recovered from the uh, robbery six years ago. But of course, you've all got an interest in betraying the others and taking that gold. And so it's like, well, uh, we're going to go together to rent the truck. Okay, well, that requires trust if there's two of you there. And it also requires a trust role for the others who are waiting for you. And that the uh, you can have that on a timer so that as the uh, what is presumably a one-shot game uh, begins to tick down, every hour the um, negative modifier on the, on the trust rolls increases. And so you've got to, uh, you know, do you succeed in uh, all getting the gold together or which of you uh, winds up betraying everybody else? And uh, it's, uh, it's sort of a prisoner's dilemma in that, you know, the first one to move. But if you're the first one to betray everybody else, everybody else can trust each other enough to take you out. So how do you wait that out? And uh, uh, I guess that's sort of a, a variation on kind of a, a diplomacy slash a secret Hitler sort of situation. Yeah, there's uh, obviously trust mechanics uh, most famously in the Mountain Witch, but then I stole them and put them in Knight's Black Agents. So if you're looking for existing trust mechanics, those are ones that simply provide a tempting, tempting incentive to betray your fellow characters as opposed to putting things on a clock. But you could easily introduce a clock or you could simply have plot elements create a clock. The classic uh, people who are together until they're not a scenario in our in our new uh, brave world is the zombie survival story in which it turns out all the survivors are just as stupid and terrible as the zombies <laughs> outside and so uh you can have a thing where every time a zombie attacks that's another decrement down on the trust die and so it becomes harder and harder and harder to trust anyone and you would still i think you would still want to introduce a bonus that you would get for betraying someone that's not just the bonus of acting first but the bonus of a mechanical oh and a plus two to your first attack on i don't know whoever um and then that would uh that would also provide a little more incentive because it's fun to introduce i think some of that ticking time bomb and some of that trust mechanic at the table again certainly in a one shot and, and allow the players to have a, a visceral sense of the fun of being a traitor so that they're more likely to do it so that the other players are more likely to suspect them of doing it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And if you can add secret betrayals to the mix, that, of course, gets even more fun. Yeah, a couple of great tricks there. Uh, one, make it possible for there to be incremental betrayal, right? So if it's just, oh, I shoot him, and then the, that player is out for the rest of the uh, game, that's not so fun. But if you're, there's like six betrayal steps, right? You, you may even have a betrayal tracker, right, that you have to commit six betrayals until you can actually shoot anybody. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, another way to create that sense of betrayal is a cycle of reprisal. So that if you're the one who uh, makes a move and betrays somebody, uh, you get a reward for that. But also the person betrayed gets a bonus on their next roll and they can't immediately use it against you. They have to come at somebody else next because otherwise just the two people who act first wipe each other out and then everybody else uh, is there. But if you have a structure where, you know, you are rewarded for getting betrayed and get an advantage that you can then use to betray others. But there's 
some sort of target smoothing mechanism to make sure that you don't just all pile on the strongest player, which is a problem in any multiplayer competitive experience, uh, then you can sort of uh, keep that uh, rhythm going and not have it immediately implode into a, a free-for-all. If it's a one-shot, you can certainly provide variable points for the person you betray. So the characters go in and it's like, oh, we're in our zombie holocaust. The uh, preacher hates the prostitute. And so he's going to get more points for betraying her because he figures, well, she's the moral reason zombies happened anyway. And he'd get less points for betraying the soldier. He'd still get some points because it's still betrayal. But he's like, oh, no, the soldier helps uphold the order. Whereas the soldier might get more points for betraying the priest because... Uh, his dad was a preacher and he's always resented clergymen or whatever it is. And so you can build those sort of overlapping webs of, of reward and resource in as opposed to it being an automatic five points for your first betrayal, six points for your second, eight points for your third, et cetera. You swap it around so that you're, you're always tempted to betray the person you really hate, even though it's not the strongest strategic move or well, tactical move. Of trust, the one thing in this podcast that I trust is that on the other side of this commercial, a completely different segment will be waiting for us. Hey Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pograin Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh... The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. As we trudge down the metal corrugated stairs into the concrete bunker where it's a little cold and we unlock the door, we realize that we're not only in the Tradecraft Hut, but in a particularly archival Tradecraft Hut, because this time around, at the behest of Patreon backer Paul S. Enns, we're going to talk about World War II spy Jean Rousseau. Uh, she's a, a really great, uh, has a really great story. Is there a movie about her yet? There should be. Uh, at age 22, 1941, in France, uh, she decides to become a spy. She's not recruited by a spy organization. She just figures if she starts accumulating information, sooner or later she'll find somebody to give it to. So she uh, works at the French Chamber of Commerce. Uh, she becomes a senior staffer there, and that involves her in all sorts of dealings with the Germans. And, and she's taken notes, Ken. Yeah. 
well, first of all, she has an excellent memory because she, this is not like she was just a little high school girl who decided, I'm going to stop the Nazis. She was, she went to, you know, a prestigious academy and graduated with a degree in languages, which means, first of all, you've got a crazy good memory for things that are said. And second of all, it means you're super smart because they didn't let people into those academies, certainly if they were from provincial Brittany who weren't super smart. So we know that she was super smart. We know she had a great ear and a great specific, uh, I, you know, almost an eidetic memory memory for things that were said. So she took some notes, but a lot of it is also just she would sit there in a lengthy conference doing the translating work because that's what her job was uh, first in Brittany and then in Paris was as a translator. And so she's, you know, translating the French to the German. And of course, she's, you know, heard the thing twice already, said it once. If there was a better place for someone who had a good memory to work as a spy. I, I don't know it. And because she was young and uh, according to the picture here, looked uh, very attractive. The German soldiers didn't want to believe that she was a spy because there can't have been that many young, attractive girls who were voluntarily spending time with them, even in Brittany, much less in the rest of France. And so uh, they, at, at least at one point, the Gestapo thought that she was a spy and the German officers on whom she was spying came and said, oh, no, 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 she can't be a spy. Uh, she's too young and, and, and innocent. <laughs> right. Uh, but little did they know that she uh, yes. was or would become a druid. A druid. Uh, the, uh, the the best part is the Gestapo arrests her in Brittany. That's not the that's not the best part, but you know what I mean. They they arrest her in Brittany. The the German the Wehrmacht puts pressure on the Gestapo to let her go, and the Gestapo says, "All right, but you can't stay in a coastal area because it's too strategically important." You have to go somewhere else. And she says, well, I guess I'll go to Paris then. I won't overhear any secrets in Paris. Yeah, yeah. Nobody <laughs> says anything secret in Paris. And so she uh, winds up uh, going to Paris, um, uh, working for an industrial concern. And of course, when you work for an industrial concern, they need interpreters to talk to the Germans and the Germans need to send people around to have specific things made. And guess what? You're right there at the center of everything again. And she winds up on the National Industrial Council of France. So she hears every German's uh, special needs for manufacturing, which is helpful. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> and she winds up in a spy network called the Druid Network run by a gentleman named uh, Georges Lamarck. What do we know about the, the Druid Network? The Druid Network was, I mean, it's fundamentally, uh, they, they, they love their code names in Spy Town. Um, Georges Lamarck was a, um, uh, academic by birth. He, you know, studied math, was, um, a hero of the, of the resistance. Or first, he was a hero of the actual war. Then he, um, uh, snuck out and did not stick around in in the armistice army he he went into civilian life and then as a civilian life he had a code name called petrol um organized his uh network in the vichy zone of france based on his wartime record. So he wasn't in the army but he's in the vichy part of france not the german occupied part of france and because he's got this war record, the Vichy government doesn't want to move against him. It's the equivalent in Vichy of being a pretty girl. And so he's able to organize this network that, of course, goes over the border into the German-occupied part of France. And those are uh, Les Druides, um, which are set up 
once they formally set up the resistance in 42 and 43, which is, of course, once the Soviets get invaded and suddenly the French Communist Party goes from being a supporter of the Nazis to being a avid member of the resistance. And it turns out when you have everyone in every industry with a lifetime experience of covert action, the resistance really gets a, an afterburner charge there. And that's when all the formal networks start getting set up as opposed to the sort of one-off things that the British ran. The Druids was one of those. So uh, we often say here in the Tradecraft Hut that the interesting thing about espionage is that it rarely ever uncovers anything that leads to a particular uh, military objective or a noticeable victory, but uh, information that Jean Rousseau uncovered uh, led to the uh, Pinamunda raid. Uh, tell us about that. Okay. Um, as we mentioned previously, she's working for the Industrial Council. So people are going to the French factories and saying, this is what we need you to build. We need you to build these things. And she, you know, begins putting the information together and begins connecting them to uh, words of a wonder weapon, which is one of the, the secret weapon that the Germans are going to build. And she decides that she wants to know more about the secret weapon. So she wonder starts... Wonder weapons are what you don't want your enemy to build. You do not want the... Well, you do if you suspect that they will do nothing but waste time and money. Yes. If you wonder if they're going to work, right. let Maybe them that's going. okay. But if they might actually be a wonder weapon... Yes. Nip that in the bud. Right. So she um, uh, starts hanging around with the people that she knows are working on the Wonder Weapon and goes to parties and um, uh, winds up, you know, hanging out with the officers after work uh, at bars, one assumes. And uh, she says, uh, I couldn't help but overhear what they said. And what they did not say, I prompted. I teased them, taunted them, looked at them wide-eyed, insisted that they must be mad when they spoke of the astounding new weapon. I kept saying, <laughs> what you are telling me cannot be true. I must have said that a hundred times. I'll show you, one of the Germans said. One assumes, little lady, uh, my lady, doffing his uh, Nazi hat because they didn't have fedoras yet. She was making an ah shuck spend, I believe. Uh, exactly. And he says, I have it all written here on my awesome plan. And he takes out the plans for the V2 rocket to show her. And um, uh, on the V2 rocket is listed the location of its construction. Uh, Pinamunda, which is an island in the Baltic uh, Sea, uh, convenient to, you know, nothing, which is why you put a rocket base there. And she uh, gets that information back to London via her druid contacts and uh, guess what? The the people in London have got their own hints about German rocketry and decide to send a number of air raids over the Pinamunda plant. Now, it doesn't stop the V2 from being produced because, uh, as we all know, the V2 fell on Great Britain in great numbers uh, during World War II, but it did slow the process down uh, by a good bit. Now, uh, unfortunately, uh, she did wind up getting captured. And uh, now, did she escape at one point, or was she just moved around between her three different uh, prison camps? I assume that she um, uh, that, that that she was moved because she would go to uh, one of the camps, and then she didn't, you know, give up her her, her information. So they'd send her to a meaner camp. Uh, they describe. Uh, Königsberg as one of the camps she she was sent to as a punishment camp, which given that you're going there from Ravensbrück, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like compared to this other uh, Nazi camp. Yeah, this one's you, the punishment. This camp. is the punishment camp. It's like, oh my god. Yeah, so, so she was at Ravensbrück and Königsberg as you mentioned, and then Torgau, which must right. be like super punishment because that well, was the third one. Torgau may have been because the other ones were getting overrun by the Americans and the the uh, Russians. Torgau is very very close to where the where the American and the Russian armies met in 1945 and it's sort of like the middle of, of, of Germany there on the Elbe. So uh, that may have, that last move may have been a, we don't want her to get rescued 
move as opposed to a, we're going to send her to the even more, the super secret double punishment camp. Uh, I think it may have just been, let's move her so that her camp doesn't get overrun. And she was rescued at the end of the war. So this does not have the, the ending that uh, you think it might when you hear the word camp. Yes. Unlike poor uh, uh, George, who was in fact executed in 1944, um, uh, she gets out, although she still has to walk to Sweden after having been in a Nazi camp and uh, suffering from tuberculosis and then winds up in um, uh, Sweden in a displaced person's uh one hopes nicer camp and where she meets a guy who was a uh, inmate of Buchenwald and Auschwitz and uh, she marries him and they have two kids and she get returns to her interpreting career after the war and uh, works for the UN. And then finally uh, the CIA gave her a medal for being an awesome spy uh, against the Nazis uh, in 1993. And I guess by then she figured what could it hurt? There are no more Nazis. I will take a medal. And she just passed away this August. So she yes. lived to the age of 98, which is pretty good for someone who has been in three camps, I think. Yeah. And uh, so of course, uh, once we want to start making things up, uh, the idea that of course uh, someone like her would have just completely retired to civilian life uh, after the war uh, maybe you could mess around with that and have sort of a 50s set super spy weirdness campaign where she's, uh, you know, your player character or even the uh, person uh, running a unit of people out of the UN to uh, uh, solve uh, exciting mystery problems. Right. I, mean, I, I think that the fun thing to do with her, I mean, yeah, you could obviously have her, you know, going up against the commies, which is all good fun. But I think if she's working for the UN as a translator, She's over, she's either going to be going up against some specter type conspiracy that has infiltrated the UN, a la the same way that she was a translator at the National Industrial Board, or, and I think this is the fun one, if she's got this incredible knowledge of languages, I think that she detects alien infiltrators. That there are like Martians or Turanians or whatever kind of um, uh, pod people uh, are being, you know, sent to replace us, uh, Nordic aliens um, coming down disguised as people. And she overhears them talking in an unknown language because of her linguistic skills, recognizes it's an unknown language and discovers that the aliens are infiltrating the UN and the various militaries. And that's why she keeps her own spy career on the DL is because. She doesn't want them to recognize, oh, she's a known Earth spy. We should not talk in front of her. Because being aliens, they would be less susceptible to her saying, oh, you cannot really be working on a super weapon. You are so handsome to be working on a super weapon or whatever. Well, we, we don't want to take that totally off the table. It's got to hap happen at some point. But there, she can do that with their human dupes. Yeah. And that's how she can tell that some people are aliens is because when she looks at them wide-eyed, they, they, they do not melt instantly. And that's how she knows they're aliens. Right. Uh, well, now that we've uh, gone off to an alien conspiracy, and perhaps we'll return to the subject of aliens later, it's time to uh, see what waits beyond this upcoming commercial message. Eight years ago, the terrorist agents of Havoc triggered a nuclear nightmare that devastated the Northern Hemisphere. Patiently in scattered colonies deep underground, survivors have been waiting for the radiation to ebb. That day has come. 
But the real battle for survival has only just begun. In Freeway Warrior 1 Highway Holocaust, you are Cal Phoenix, the Freeway Warrior, champion and protector of Dallas Colony 1. Murderous Havoc bikers hunt your fragile convoy as it crosses the wastelands of Texas. Defending your people and reaching your destination intact requires all the wit and courage you can muster. Highway Holocaust, an exclusive hardcover with dust jacket and book ribbons, is the first choose-your-own-adventure game book in Joe Deaver's post-apocalyptic Freeway Warrior series. From the fine folks at Phoenix, now available from Modifius. Prevent this podcast from exploding in a fiery orange ball by joining such Patreon backers as Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, Anderson Todd, Jacob True, Mark Galliotti, and Ryan Liebarger. The humming of the orthicon tubes and the fading out of the gray static welcome us once more to the television hut where Robin controls the vertical and I control the horizontal. And here we are going to talk about what Robin has puckishly named the insidious Abramsification. And he has a thesis that Alias, TV show Alias, starring the lovely Jennifer Garner as the lovely Sydney Bristow, changed the procedural television structure. Robin, present your thesis for the amazement of the listeners. As a, a uh, prelude to that, I'm going to get you to describe your previous thesis about the dread botchkoization, which we've yes. talked about before in this show, because this is a a uh, sort of a recurrence of that phenomenon. So, so Ken, what is the dread botchkoization, briefly? It's the dire botchkoization, first of all. But second of all, it is the tendency of a television shows to switch from shows focused around a central character or a central pair or, di- or triad at, at most, uh, Kirk, Spock, McCoy in the classic example, to an ensemble cast, each of whom has their own story, each of which story moves along a la a soap opera. And this moved into the uh, mainstream of primetime television with a perfectly good uh, cop show called Hill Street Blues uh, done by Steve Bochco. And uh, Bochco's use of a large number of stars who you didn't have to pay as much as you had to pay a few big stars, uh, the ability to sort of incrementally advance the plot, meaning you didn't actually have to kill yourself to come up with the killer concept for 44 minutes, and the ability to create the dopamine hook that a good soap opera does proved irresistible to television programmers. And so what we get is a infinite number of Padded ensemble shows full of characters you don't care about, advancing a plot, not at all, even if you cared about the plot, which you didn't, and endlessly sleeping with each other and betraying their fundamental core character concept merely as an excuse to extend a storyline or create a new storyline that pairs characters who maybe haven't gotten enough screen time. It is everything bad about uh, modern television, and it's all Steve Bochco's fault. So, the the Abramsification occurs uh, in the show Alias, which takes... The procedural, which previously we're all familiar with the structure of the uh, problem of the week, that the uh, characters who may be a, a triad, as in Star Trek, or an ensemble, as in uh, Star Trek The Next Generation, but they are confronted with a problem at the beginning. They uh, often use their iconic ethos uh, to solve that problem. They are oft- uh, generally iconic heroes. And then the story concludes with the solving of the problem, perhaps with a little coda at the end where they review the thing that they've learned or probably more likely relearned uh, in the course of that uh, story. As uh, And that, of course, comes along even further as the idea of, you know, what is the lesson? What have we learned? I don't know if that's necessarily, you know, something that's in an episode of The Rifleman. Maybe it is. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but 
uh, Alias, what it started to do is to uh, amp up the soap opera elements, the elements that you've been talking about in the botchkoization, and uh, give them uh, equal primacy or, or sometimes greater primacy than the uh, procedural problem of the week. And so, and that is because basically Abrams' concept for Alias is Felicity if Felicity was a spy, uh, because then you could have a thing happen that was more dramatic than uh, just Felicity cutting her hair and making everybody mad that her perfect haircut got replaced. And so if you look particularly at the first season of Alias, the idea is she spends half of her time with her regular friends doing regular sort of uh, uh, post-college sort of things, soap opera, and then she periodically jumps into the spy part of the storyline where she goes off and does spy things. And because of that structure, it's not that she's presented with a spy problem at the beginning and solves it at the end, and then they uh, review whatever lessons were learned, but that the soap opera is interspersed with the procedural. And the final moments, the climactic moments of the uh, episode may well be dramatic instead of procedural. And so what that means is that the procedural takes up less and less time in the narrative requires less uh, writing and less uh, making the plotting of that work and, and having it just be a thing that you can drop in in the middle for some excitement, which will then have a character ramification, which follows through into the uh, soap opera part. And so over the years since then, we've seen this more and more in procedural shows, even shows that began very uh, straight up procedurally, like Supernatural, for example. Now, by the time that it's reached its incredible 15th or 16th season and is more popular than ever, thanks to Netflix, so it's the gun smoke of, of nerd shows at this point, basically, that uh, you will quite often see that they will wrap up the monster problem at the end of the third act, and then there'll be an another entire act full of continuity and uh, the brothers uh, being in conflict with each other or resolving the previous conflict they had with each other. And this uh, is in very stark relief with the new Trek show, because, again, very often the, uh, the problem solving uh, that leads to a moral dilemma is still there, but it's pushed way back into the structure of the show. And again, quite often, the uh, problem of the week will be uh, either dealt with at the end of the third act or perhaps not even introduced until the beginning of the second act. And uh, it will have ramifications on the sort of soap opera serialized uh, portion of it. But uh, once again, an entire final act might just be a character interaction. And so this shows our uh, a general move towards serialization, toward uh, continuity, and uh, also uh, something that uh, not only hooks you in, but requires you to, uh, if not binge, to tune in every week, and also is uh, coincidentally easier to write. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the real key of it is because coming up with a killer procedural is super hard. Um, and even very great procedural shows don't always do it. Uh, the X-Files, uh, you could say the pre-carterization that precedes the Abramsification, which is to do the alternating uh, what they called monster and mythology shows. So the monster shows were the standalone monster of the week. Mulder and Scully have a straight up procedural that could have been uh, written and filmed. Well, maybe not filmed, but written in 1947, uh, probably by Richard Matheson, which means it probably would have been better. Um, and then uh, the mythology ones are where they do their, their sort of version of the soap opera where we're looking for Mulder's sister or someone gets covered in black oil or Scully maybe or maybe not be abducted. And they, they have the sort of ongoing what's going on with the government. And even then it's still 
soap opera in the service of a larger mythology, hence the name, a mystery about the show. Um, and that methodology works until you discover that no, there is no mythology. It's just endless foot dragging a la the dire botchkoization. Right. And interestingly, in the, the X-Files of the Return, it had been Abramsified. And so uh, you had, at least in one of the episodes, a big coda at the end where Mulder and Scully sit on a rock and talk and reminisce and have a dramatic scene that is quite uh, long and reflective, but they've already dealt with the, the creature of the week. So even uh, older shows, as they're coming back, are having that structure fold into them. And I think uh, in addition to being easier, the argument is that they're more, more emotionally compelling, that what people want is the characters. They don't care quite so much about the monster of the week. But well, even in again, the again, soap operas have always been emotionally compelling ever since they were invented yeah. in Chicago for the radio. That's their great key. Whether or not that's actually, you know, particularly good writing is a whole different question. Right. Well, there's the question of, is it good? And, and is it perceived as something that people want? Obviously it is. Uh, the uh, uh, Brian Fuller and uh, the rest of the team that decided to reconfigure track, decided to reconfigure it to seem more, you know, they, there's a bunch of ways that they want that to seem more contemporary. And one of them clearly is uh, that it follows this uh, this newer structure. Well, the que- the question of how much Brian Fuller has to do with the current Trek is perhaps an open question. And if you look at Fuller's other shows, he at least is you know with um uh, with some of them there's a ver- like pushing daisies. There's a very strong head fake back towards at the very least an overlaid uh procedural emotional storytelling, a la the uh, the glorious. Uh, Rob Thomasification, which hasn't happened because it's very hard, that you saw in the first couple of seasons of Veronica Mars, where you can do a procedural story, usually two procedural stories, because he's a show-off, and build a soap opera emotional relationship arc into something, and also follow a big bad plot a la um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or later Alias. Right, and certainly structurally it feels like uh, a show that follows this new paradigm is the tension quite often dramatically slackens. And then it's like, okay, so we finished the story and now here's basically an act full of setup for the next uh, uh, thing. And, but anyway, so now, now if you're noticing that, that the, uh, the structure of procedural TV has changed, it'll be interesting to see, you know, who and how long it takes for someone else to throw in another element that changes things again. But for the moment, uh, we are definitely uh, not just at the movie theaters where your star Wars are, but on your television, Living in the Abrams era. And on that note, uh, let's find out what era we're going to be living in on the other side of this commercial. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you.
The alien cat screaming on the moor tell us that we are, oh yes, here we are in that most ill-defined of huts, and there in the corner, oh yeah, there's the gray alien, and there's his friend, the Nordic alien. Once again, they're having a kombucha and talking in that strange pictographic language and those uh, telepathy bubbles above their head. So fortunately, that's totally quiet, won't wreck the audio. Uh, it's the Elliptony Hut, folks, and Ken, uh, this time we're going to look at a, a classic of uh, ufology before they were called UFOs, and that is the Aurora airship crash. So uh, this story begins in good old 1896. That's uh, a year after the uh, the Yellow King starts messing around. Uh, surely a coincidence. And uh, there's a rash from 1896 to 1897 of cigar-shaped uh, mis- mystery craft across uh, uh, North America. And uh, Ken, do you want to talk about that general flap before we get to the uh, to the crash? Yeah, I mean, to begin with, there is all manner of you know discussion about new flying craft. There is a time of confusion and brouhaha uh, leading into the 1896-1897 uh, airship sightings begin. Depending on how you count it, they begin in good old Canada in Ottawa in 1891 when someone sees an airship, and then there are airships spotted on the Polish-Russian borderland in 1892, and so on and so forth, until uh, the big uh, wave begins in 1896 in California. And these guys are being seen, mostly beginning in the West, spreading uh, across to the East, and they are sometimes uh, men from Mars, sometimes they are just local inventors, uh, one very, very, uh, I don't want to say well-documented, but let's say thickly documented case, uh, describes a guy who calls himself Wilson and is going to go down to Cuba and kill all the Spaniards. Um, so that's something that's up. Uh, I'll point out that 1896 is a period of grievous economic uh, problems in America. The 1893 Depression is continuing to get worse and worse and worse. And so people are being more and more distracted by crazy things. There is also a very excellent bit of investigation that a lot of these airship reports are spread by telegraph operators and that telegraph operators would read one airship report and say, well, we should have an airship report in our town. And they would make one up and send it onto the other telegraph operators. And their goal was to see if they could hocus another newspaper in another town in a printing their pretend airship report yes the 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 present era was not the first era of fake news (laughs) of of goofballs on the internet messing with you um and and lovely enough one of the people who to the extent you can identify anyone uh a hundred years later as a ringleader in this is a, a famous telegraph operator named scully and so the notion that he's out there seeding gullibility about UFOs and his name Scully is just pretty great. But does he have, have red hair? Maybe are we going to make him up as having red hair? In my heart, he has red hair. So Sacramento reports a sighting in November of 1870, 1896. Uh, Stockton uh, reports another one, uh, and these are usually people who are like colonels and and state senators that are very noble um, uh, sounding eyewitnesses. And the question that people have to dig into as they research these cases is, did the newspaper actually hate that state senator? And so is there a better way to discredit him than by saying, well, according to state Senator Harris, he spoke at length with a man from an airship from Mars. <laughs> um, another case, the, the airship would land and, and need water or would need tools to fix itself. That was often the human in- inventors. At one point, though, Martians did land, I believe, in Wisconsin. 
and wanted pancakes. They hadn't heard of the cheese, I guess. They, they had not yet heard of the cheese. This was maybe pre-curd or when cheese curds were still being uh, considered a uh, strategic reserve by the McKinley administration. And so the story sort of began to spread west in a uh, in a great uh, number um, by any number of vectors, uh, newspapers messing with their political foes, telegraph operators messing with the newspapers. And once people read about airships and start seeing lights in the sky, guess what? You start seeing airships, just like you saw angels in medieval times, just like you see gray aliens in the 70s, just like you see whatever it is you see now, probably Slenderman. The, because people see stuff, and that is a true thing about people. Uh, but on April 17th, it all, all escalates in 1897 when there's a big old crash in Aurora, Texas. Yes. Or so the story goes. Yes. The uh, Judge Proctor owned a windmill, according to the story. Uh, it was actually a, um, a sewer pump or a sump pump, but, you know, whatever. Uh, the airship smashed into the windmill, um, and the story reported, according to the Dallas Morning News, that the pilot was not an inhabitant of this world, and that strange hieroglyphics were seen on the wreckage. Now, the strange hieroglyphics seen on the wreckage may or may not be from the original report. This may be from people who went back and rediscovered the report in the 70s. MUFON, uh, UFO Investigating Network, had a great deal of skin in the airship game for some reason. Um, <laughs> and really, really you wanted to believe... would be lower hanging fruit than the, uh, than the airship uh, yep. flap. But they really wanted to have uh, the airship be a thing. Uh, they found a, the the stone marker, allegedly, for the burial of the alien. Um, and they uh, discovered some stuff with our metal detector. And um, uh, uh, then uh, the st- city said, no, you can't dig it up. And when they came to bring back a credible witness, guess what? The marker had been removed and there was no sign that they weren't drunk at the time. <laughs> So yeah, it's, it's a big deal. Uh, the, the, the hoax sort of came out of Aurora, Texas at a time when Aurora was in a very bad way because of, uh. What, Ken? This was a hoax? Uh, you know, let's just say that, uh, the, the, the thing came at the right time for the good people of Aurora, Texas to have curious strangers come to town and spend money. Cause they'd had a ball weevil epidemic. They'd had and a, a- ca- spotted fever, uh, outbreak. And then they lost the railroad, which is always the, the worst thing in the world. Uh, yeah, if you want the railroad back, uh, have an airship crash. That's right. That's, that's the Business Administration 101. That'll teach them. There's a great deal of back and forth about it because, as I say, MUFON, for reasons known only to itself, really dug in its heels on this one. Um, but by and large, later, less uh, gullible investigators um, went and found no evidence of the crash having happened or no evidence of the um, uh, cemetery existing. Yeah, The MUFON guys in 1973 said that they had eyewitnesses who saw the airship crash or who saw uh, or whose parents went to the crash site and then uh, those people per- perhaps were having a little fun with the MUFON guys. Because <laughs> there are other people, other witnesses who said, yep, it was all made up. Yep, it was uh, made not up. Not exactly in that accent. I do not have a Texas accent. Right. It was made up by uh, S.E. Hayden uh, a beloved uh, newspaperman. As so many Fortean events were. So uh, that's the veil out. Uh, what What is the real story behind the story that we can reveal to our breathless listeners now? Well, I mean, first of all, I think that one of the things that's fun about the airship crash is very much that there's, you go in 1973 and if you didn't sort of 
suspect already that someone was having fun with someone. That 1973 investigation seems on the surface to be really credible. So what I like is that the veil out doesn't happen immediately, that the alien is just lying around there in 1897. There's a whole wave of sort of secretive airship inventors uh, in America that are all got their airships. Some of them are going to Spain. Some of them are doing other things. Some of them uh, brought down Martians to teach them to build airships. There's a, uh, the Sonora Aero Club uh, supposedly existed, a, a team of super inventors that went off to Sonora, California to build uh, airships. So we have an ongoing secret airship uh, infrastructure or ultra structure, I guess it would be in America in the 1890s. And one of them crashes in Texas, but for some reason, no one comes to cover it up then. They don't dig the uh, giant pieces of metal up out of the graveyard. They don't move the body. They don't silence the witnesses. There's no men in black frock coats traveling around silencing airship witnesses. Although how awesome would that campaign be? Um, they're, they, they don't do anything until 1973 when it's discovered. So for some reason, this whole story lays fallow. This whole incident lays fallow for, you know, 80 years. And, uh, the uh, theory that no one cared for 80 years will be dismissed immediately because who wants that theory? And so the question is, what's going on in that bubble of time until it is actually veiled out by whoever does veil outs, by Delta Green or whoever, um, after MUFON uh, uh, perhaps uh, blows it up and then it comes back and it gets covered. It, it gets properly covered up by um, uh, a Dallas TV station in the 90s, um, which it says, no, no, it, it's, it's a made up story. Now, if there's one thing we know about airships, it's that when you see them in the sky, that means you're in an alternate world. Right. Um, and so I think what we can also intuit is that for our reality to remain reality prime, it can't have airships. And so any attempt to uh, build airships is an invitation to uh, other fractionally different dimensions full of uh, weirdo John Keel creatures to invade us. Ultra-terrestrials. So, yeah, ultra-terrestrials. So uh, there may, in fact, be a Delta Green-style organization uh, whose goal is to prevent airships from being built. And, you know, ordinary planes, that's fine. That's good. But the good old fashioned sort of dirigible looking, anything that you could describe as an airship instead of a plane. Or a blimp. Blimps are okay. Uh, Yeah. Even those are borderline. Yeah. There are some blimp designs that they have taken a harsh line on. Let me tell you. Yes. There is. uh, Blimps are, are kind of like the, you know, you have to fight. Uh, the enemy with the methods of the enemy type situation. Yeah, there's a reason why it has to say Goodyear on the side. Right. And that's because otherwise it would be a bad year. It would and be a bad year. Ultra-terrestrials would invade. And so uh, you may in fact be part of the uh, the Bureau of uh, Ultra-Terrestrial Studies and your uh, job, among other jobs, of course, they have other ways of coming into reality, particularly, you know, if there's an accident going to occur on a bridge, then you got to worry about the Mothman showing up. And so uh, but a big part of your job is making sure that uh, airships uh, aren't possible, that anyone who tries to build an airship uh, comes to a uh, an unfortunate crash, if not a personal demise, and that uh, stories like this are, uh, are conclusively veiled out because airships equals other dimension. We don't want to be another dimension. We want to be this dimension. Right. Um, and the notion that the whole story vanishes basically between 1897 and 1973 implies that that is one of the battlegrounds of this war for reality. And that uh, I think a cursory examination of the history of the world from 1897 to 1973 makes a strong argument for that. Not least because the Nazis are doing what they're building airships. There you go. 
And so, um, uh, it may or may not have been Delta Green that set, uh, the, the Hindenburg on fire, uh, or that, uh, caused the Macon and the Akron to go down in storms at sea. But, um, uh, the airship cabal stretches into the highest reaches of the U.S. military because we're building airships just like everybody else. So there's all manner of threats. The, the ultra-terrestrial sort of high watermark happens in the 30s and 40s. And then again, in the 60s, one assumes there's sort of a final offensive as ever more weird stuff comes into our reality and it has to be tamped out in a lengthy pacification process, uh, it, starting in, you know, the late 1970s and then moving through, uh, modern era. And now they're bringing online giant transport airships. Yes. Uh, they're being, uh, Sergei Brin is going to build one. He's right. going to build the Brindenburg. That, right. That, not the actual name. That's my name for it. And do we see any signs that reality is coming apart and going weird? Uh, mm. Maybe, maybe, maybe chin we do. Chin-stroking emoji, chin-stroking yes. emoji. So, folks, uh, uh, look up to the skies. If you see an airship, uh, rush out, erect a sump pump, and uh, pierce that sucker so it, it blows up and falls to ground. Because, like I said, we want to be this dimension, not some other dimension. The dimension where this podcast will return next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Look out for airships alongside such patrons as... Scott Herring. Timothy Corum. Todd McGowan. Tony Kemp. Andrew Clory. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.